At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 31, The French-Indochina War, part 1, 1945 to 1950. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. So in this episode, we're going to examine the origins of the Franco-Vietnamese War, or otherwise known as the Vietnamese Revolution, or the First Vietnam War. Additionally, we'll examine how the United States became involved in the region. If possible, I would recommend you check out this episode on the website, as I have a handy map there, which illustrates many of the locations we talk about in this episode, along with the pictures for the episode. As always, forgive me for any mispronunciations. Vietnam, where most of this story takes place, is sort of like an hourglass, about roughly the size of California, with two major river deltas, one in the north and one in the south, where most of the population lived. Several hundred miles of narrow coastline separate them with a rugged mountain chain which runs down the center of the country. Vietnam and the region in general had long been in the periphery of the great Chinese empire, and China had invaded and occupied the region on several occasions. Chinese political, political, cultural, and economic influence reigned supreme for hundreds of years throughout Southeast Asia. Nevertheless, with the beginning of the 19th century, China, under the Qing dynasty, started a pre precipitous decline as China lost a series of wars to European enemies. France colonized Southeast Asia in the 19th century for four primary reasons. The first was she wanted access to Chinese markets, and control of Vietnam facilitated the creation of a sphere of influence in southern China, where France could sell her goods. China at the time was still the largest market in the world, and France wanted access to these markets to sell her goods. French industry struggled as France had a small domestic market with a declining population. In fact, France's share of global exports had declined after 1860, falling from 12.8% to 9.8% uh, by 1890. Thus, the conquest of Indochina, it was believed, would result in lucrative markets in the Far East for French goods. The second reason France colonized Southeast Asia was because she wanted an outpost between British-controlled India and China, where she could compete against her historical rival, Great Britain, a rivalry that went back centuries. Indochina was called the Pearl of the French Empire, and the French had aspirations to make Saigon the French Singapore. Moreover, this was the golden age of imperialism. All the western states in Japan raced to gobble up markets in weak states. The Europeans divided all of Africa between them, minus Liberia and Ethiopia. Even small Belgium conquered the Congo, which is roughly the size of Western Europe in comparison. The United States conquered the Philippines and Puerto Rico, whereas Japan defeated China for control of Korea in 1895. To be a great power, it was necessary at this time to have colonies. Religion also played a role in the conquest of Indochina, as many of the first French in the region were French missionaries. 
Under the Second French Empire, the numbers of missionaries increased dramatically, and unlike many places in Asia, Vietnam had a substantial Catholic population, who at times came under persecution, which animated many French conservatives in protecting the Vietnamese Catholics. The Catholic Church also urged the French government to use force to impose religious freedom on the various Vietnamese kingdoms. This all worked into the French belief that they were bringing civilization to, quote, savage peoples, dispensing the benefits of modern governments and economic and scientific growth. The French did, however, face fierce resistance in their conquest of what is today Vietnam. Between 1858 and 1867, France conquered much of southern Vietnam around the Mekong Delta. In 1873, she launched a failed bid to take northern Vietnam, but renewed the conquest of the north from 1882 to 1897. Despite these attempts by various Vietnamese states to hold the line, these societies eventually were unable to match the technological and industrial power of France and succumbed to French rule. Moreover, with the decline of China, Vietnam lost the protection of a once regional superpower. Vietnam was, however, the last Asian state to be conquered by the West. China declined for reasons we touched on in episode 21. However, it should be noted that during this period, China was defeated in the Opium Wars, France having participated in the second 1856-1860, and China became engulfed in a horrible civil war, the Taiping Rebellion, 1854 to 1864, that cost the lives of 20, million, 20 to 30 million people. As the second bloodiest conflict in human history, it is although rarely spoke about. The kingdoms of Khmer, present-day Cambodia, and Laos, facing the threat of French or Thai absorption, adopt, opted to become French protectorates, believing that they would fare better under the French versus the, the Thai. Like we saw with the British in India or the Dutch in Indonesia, a governor-general was appointed by Paris to rule the colony. The French population that came to live in Vietnam was primarily concentrated in three urban centers of Haiphong and Hanoi in the north and the sprawling city of Saigon in the far south. Central and rural Vietnam saw very little French investment. In the south, or what was perhaps often called Cochin China, became the principal base for French capitalism in Vietnam and the destination of choice for most French immigrants and was sometimes called the Paris of the Orient. Indochina never became a lucrative colony as the French would have hoped, though. Only a small group of white planters and the Bank of Indochina made most of the money. Most French consumers ended up paying higher prices for goods from Vietnam than from domestic producers, and French industry didn't really prosper from French control of Vietnam. In 1940, 34,000 French lived in Indochina out of a population of 22,655,000. Half of these people worked as civil servants as administrators of the colony. Life in the colony on average was quite nice for the French as the average French citizen had a higher standard of living in Indochina versus back in France. Despite French claims to bring modern and enlightened rule to Indochina, the French clearly exploited the subjects of her Indochina colony. Indigenous manufacturing was suppressed in favor of imported French goods, and a mercantile system was put in place, meaning the colonies could only trade with France. No pre free press existed, and unlike in India, no nationalist aspirations were allowed. The peasants were forced to pay heavy taxes to finance the French colonial apparatus, causing much resentment. With these funds, the French created a system of roads and railroads connecting the country's economic sectors, along with rubber plantations and mining operations. However, France did help improve irrigation systems, combat malaria, built schools and hospitals, along with a university. 
the French sought to displace the teachings of Confucius and classical China with those of the West and the Enlightenment. In a short time, a Vietnamese wealthy merchant class soon developed in Saigon, its wealth based on commerce and absentee landlordism. These Vietnamese were very much Francophiles. They admired French culture and institutions, eating French food and wearing the latest Parisian fashions. Unfortunately, though, they were looked down on by the French colonists, who often still considered them to be savages. When these Vietnamese did challenge the colonial system, they did so within the confines of the French imperial order. It's ironic that the French, through their very educational system were, they were introducing, were undermining their own imperial system. Confucius spoke of obedience to the state, but the French insisted on the Vietnamese reading Voltaire, who condemned tyranny, Rousseau's embrace of popular sovereignty, and Victor Hugo's advocacy of liberty and the defense of workers' uprisings. These early nationalists also drew encouragement from Japan's victory over Russia in 1905, which showed that an Asiatic power could defeat a European nation, cracking the myth of white superiority. Nevertheless, the French, through the secret police, managed to keep a lid on agitation, and by 1914, only had some 2,500 French soldiers in all of Indochina. In World War I, thousands of Vietnamese, Cambodians, and Laotians fought on the Western Front and in the Balkans, and many expected greater autonomy and self-rule as a result of their sacrifices for France. Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, one of which was self-determination, and the rise of Bolshevism in Russia and Sun Yat-sen's Nationalist Party in China, which preached nationalism, democracy, and socialism, also helped to galvanize the Vietnamese middle class and intelligentsia around the ideas of greater autonomy and or independence. Ho Chi Minh was one of these early leaders of this movement and even traveled to Paris to meet with Woodrow Wilson at the Paris summit in 1919 to plead his case for Vietnamese independence. He failed, however, to get his meeting, but Ho still had a lot of faith in the United States. Ho believed that the United States was different from other European great powers. He saw America as a society that had been born out of an anti-colonial struggle. Moreover, America's rhetoric of equal rights and self-determination set it apart in Ho's mind. Ho had also visited Boston and New York in 1912 and 1913 and was very impressed with the United States. However, he and the rest of the Vietnamese nationalist movement would have to wait until the 1940s until they had another chance at winning their independence. In 1939, another Great War broke out in Europe, pitting Great Britain and France against Hitler's Third Reich. France once again rallied her empire to the cause, but in a shocking turn of events was overrun in the spring of 1940. With France under occupation, Indochina came under considerable diplomatic pressure from the Japanese, who wanted access to Indochina's rubber and her ports, as they would be useful later on as jumping-off points for the invasion of the Philippines, Indonesia, and Malaya. Moreover, the Japanese sought to close the Indochinese border from supplying Chinese. French officials sought security assurances from the British and Americans, or at the very least, arms, especially planes. The Americans refused, and the British were fighting the Germans in Europe, said they didn't want to start a war uh, with Japan, nor did they have the supplies to send. The French therefore opted to cooperate with the Japanese versus fighting it out, and granted them access to the Vietnamese port cities. The Japanese chose to work with the French versus trying to occupy the nation as it would tie down more Japanese forces, and besides, she was already getting everything she asked for. Ideologically, though, Japan worked to displace the French and undermine their psychological hold of the Vietnamese people with the propaganda of their Greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere and the slogan, 
quote, Asia for the Asians, close quote. They organized judo classes and distributed Japanese movies and magazines. The French fought back with the Indo-Chinese Federation, a mutually beneficial organization of different peoples held together by France, which promoted Vietnamese culture and language. They also raised the salaries of Vietnamese in the service of the colonial government. They built more schools and increased the number of children enrolled in schools from 450,000 in 1940 to 700,000 by 1944. They also started youth sports leagues and constructed sports stadiums, swimming pools, and libraries. They even established an annual tour to Indochina, uh, like the Tour de France. Sensing the opportunity that autumn, the communists launched a nationwide uprising, which was brutally crushed by the French authorities. The French metropole may have been occupied, but the Indochinese colonial apparatus was still firmly in place. Indochina, under Governor Admiral Jean de Croix, patterned his government off of that of the Vichy authoritarian France. He expected obedience and gratitude from his Vietnamese subjects and tolerated no disrespect or nationalist agitations. Secret police, or Surti, hunted down Vietnamese nationalists, Jews, liberals, free French, and Freemasons. Surti could intern any, anyone deemed dangerous without trial and deport them to forced labor gangs. The press was censored and at least 17 newspapers were shut down between 1940 and 1943. Ho Chi Minh and the communists didn't give up, though. They decided to launch a new bid for independence, this time in a potentially broader-based independence movement, establishing the Revolutionary League for Independence of Vietnam. The movement would emphasize Vietnamese nationalism over socialism and would focus its efforts at removing French rule and Japanese influence from Vietnam. Ho saw nationalism as the one force that could unite all Vietnamese across class and social lines, winning the communists' broad popular support. Moreover, wishing to win American support for this project, Ho knew that Washington would hesitate in backing a communist movement, and so he played down the socialist aspects of the movement. Many thousands of Vietnamese who might have wanted to no part of the communists joined the Viet Minh movement against the French, motivated by their deep desire to achieve independence. Women also came to play a key role in the struggle as the Viet Minh argued for women's rights. Other nationalist movements declined as members left. Because they refused to choose a side or threw their lot in with the French against the communists, hoping to achieve independence through an incremental political process. However, many lost all credibility with the majority of the Vietnamese people. For most Vietnamese, though, life changed very little between 1940 and 1944. Japanese rarely ventured outside of the major cities, and the French still ruled in the countryside. However, among the French settlers, the educated, middle-class, and wealthy Vietnamese, it was clear that the French were a puppet regime, stalling for time as the true power was now with Japan. Japan in 1941, to facilitate good relations with Thailand, its ally gave them the green light to invade Indochina to capture two bordering provinces. A series of Franco-Thai skirmishes ensued and bogged down into a stalemate, although the French Navy easily defeated the Thai Navy. Japan had to come to the rescue of her ally and force the French to cave into the Thai demands. This Vichy Japan detente, however, allowed the Viet Minh to attack the French and Japanese without being labeled hostile to the Allied cause. By early 1943, the Viet Minh had taken control of a large chunk of northern Vietnam. The American OSS, the precursor to the CIA, made contact with Ho in 1944 and provided the Viet Minh with radio equipment, some arms and ammunition in exchange for intelligence about the Japanese, 
sabotage against the Japanese, and help with rescuing downed American pilots. Later, the OSS dropped a medic into northern Vietnam who helped cure Ho of malaria and dysentery, restoring his life, although Ho did remain frail for the rest of his life. Everywhere the medic went, he was showered with gifts. This was a very small gesture on the part of the Americans, but gained them immense popularity amongst the peoples of northern Vietnam. As the war turned against the Japanese, though, Indochina became more of a liability. It represented the only route for retreat for its forces in Malay and Indonesia. If American forces landed there, it could potentially cut these forces from off from retreat, effectively trapping them. Japanese officials also believed having control of Indochina would give them more leverage in any future peace negotiations with the Allies. Many French colonists were now openly Gaullist as well, with pictures of de Gaulle hanging in public offices. Technically speaking, de Gaulle's free French government had declared war on Japan in 1941 and had been unsuccessfully trying to get the Americans to help them liberate Indochina with French troops in the vanguard. Cover of darkness, on March the 9th, 1945, the Japanese, with thousands of troops stationed there already, executed a coup arresting French colonial administration, the police, most of the army, and navy, along with taking control of the banks. As part of the plan, the Japanese even invited most high-ranking French officers to dinner, where they were promptly arrested. The French were taken by surprise despite preparing for such an event the last four years. Throughout Vietnam, the, Viet the Japanese quickly captured government buildings, radio stations, banks, and factories. Public beating and humiliation of French officials and officers happened throughout the country, and French women were gang-raped repeatedly by Japanese soldiers. The French forces on the Chinese border put up a, the greatest amount of resistance, but were overcome in May as some 5,700 French and colonial troops retreated across the border into China, where they were quickly arrested and held in captivity until the end of the war, despite a technically being allies of the Chinese. The March coup had materially and psychologically delivered a body blow to the French imperialism in Indochina. French colonial rule had been based on cultural and military superiority, and the French had been defeated in the span of a little over two months, with only token resistance in most places. Before the coup, France controlled most of Indochina with some 12,000 French troops, after the defeat at the hands of the Japanese, it would take far more to reassert the rule of the region. On the positive side, though, the coup gave de Gaulle a claim that France had participated in the war in Asia and should have a say in the peace. Second, it wiped away the problem of dealing with the embarrassment of the collaborationist de Gaulle regime. The Japanese proclaimed the independence of Vietnam and placed Bao Dai, a picture on the website as the new emperor of Vietnam and Tran Tran Kim, a history teacher, as prime minister. The monarchies of Cambodia and Laos soon followed suit. The Vietnamese nonetheless felt no kinship with the Japanese and expected to be liberated by the Americans. American prestige in Vietnam had grown since the U.S. had begun the liberation of the Philippines and affirmed that the Philippines would be granted independence after the war. For the rest of the war, the Bo Dai Japanese puppet government in Wei proved to be ineffective, and the power of the Viet Minh quickly grew throughout the northern countryside. The French defeat greatly aided the Viet Minh. The Japanese had removed the dreaded secret police. Moreover, the Japanese based most of their troops in urban areas and along the roads and railroads, leaving the Viet Minh in control of most of the rural northern countryside, although they had very little presence in southern Vietnam. Another element that boosted their popularity amongst the people of the, of the North was the famine of 1944-1945. The, 
Northern Vietnam had less arable land than the South and was dependent on rice shipments from the South to feed the population. In 1941, bad weather and the Japanese and French taxes caused supplies to decline. In 1944, rice crops declined by 19% due to drought and insects, and that autumn, major flooding destroyed large parts of the northern rice crop. Despite these disasters, the French continued to increase the rice tax. These events, in combination with Allied bombing of roads and trains and the sinking of shipping, cut the north off from food supplies in the south, resulting in mass starvation. In many areas, the streets were littered with the dead and dying. Families and people roamed from village to village looking for food. Others returned to their homes, shared what little food they had left, and died. Some people, having eaten everything like tree bark, roots, leaves, pets, and rats, resorted to cannibalism. Others sold their children to slavery for a few cups of rice. No exact uh, numbers exist around how many people died. Estimates range from 300,000 to 2 million. Whatever the number, it had a substantial impact on the population in northern Vietnam. The Viet Minh, however, benefited from this tragedy. They led raids on government and Japanese granaries and redistributed rice amongst the Vietnamese peasants, winning popular support. This allowed the Viet Minh to seize control over rural regions, attracting followers from the villages they controlled. The tiny force of fighters under Vu Yun Jap uh, quickly grew into what became the Vietnamese Liberation Army. By 1945, his forces had reached 5,000 men, although many lacked weapons. Meanwhile, back in France, de Gaulle and the French, though, were intent on reestablishing French rule in Indochina. Michelin Rubber Company had a number of large rubber plantations, and a number of French companies had investments in bauxite, magnesium, and other minerals. But more importantly for France, restoring her colonial empire would reestablish her as a global power. The Americans, on the other hand, were split over the issue of Vietnamese independence. Many were reluctant to anger the French over Vietnam when they would need their help in rebuilding Europe. FDR and many liberals and Asian specialists in the State Department were firmly against France resuming business as usual. For, for one, they believed that France had done a horrible job in administering the country, and second, why should they help the French? What type of aid had she really provided in the war? France had surrendered in the opening stages, and in the Pacific she barely put up a fight before her forces had surrendered or retreated. It was clear to many American uh, analysts that imperialism was done. Propping up the old European racist empires would only hurt America's reputation internationally and endanger the prospects of American trade with developing markets. FDR proposed putting Indochina under international trusteeship until such time that her constituent parts could be granted independence. On the other hand, many French didn't trust the Americans either. They suspected that the United States had its own economic designs on Vietnam. The French believed that the OSS agents in Vietnam were working on behalf of American oil companies and not gathering intelligence on the Japanese. Ho continued his lobbying for American support through his contacts with the OSS and the Kuomintang. The Soviets and Chinese communists were unhappy with Ho's open flirtation with Washington, but from Ho's perspective, the United States was the only real power in the Pacific that could realistically help him to achieve his goal of Vietnamese independence. The Chinese Communist Party was wrapped up in its own civil war that had been put on hold to fight the Japanese, and the Soviet Union was thousands of miles away with no presence in the region. Beyond that, only the United States had offered his revolution any real aid up to this point. China and the Soviets had only offered rhetoric. However, with the death of FDR in April 1945, Vietnam lost its biggest ally in American government. 
Truman was more interested in finishing the war versus the state of the post-war world. Moreover, given the very little communication between the two men, Truman probably knew very little of Roosevelt's goals for Vietnam. Sensing the opportunity, those in the pro-French camp at the State Department and the military sought to try and, re- uh, try and influence the new president away from FDR's trustee idea. This led to a clash amongst the European and Asian lobbies in the American government. The Asian lobby stressed that the French and imperialism was a spent force in Asia, and no matter how much aid was given to the French, they wouldn't be able to reestablish themselves in Southeast Asia. They argued supporting European colonial efforts were short-sighted and that America would only be swimming against the tide of history, alienating the nations of Asia against the U.S. for decades to come. Moreover, given the state of the Vietnamese economy, how could the Vietnamese do any worse in running their own nation than the French did? Although the State Department had some racist views of the Vietnamese, in general, they believed they were intelligent, had a complex culture, and were vigorous. It was also feared that if the United States didn't take up the anti-colonial mantle in Asia, another power might, such as a revived Japan or worse, the Soviet Union. The European lobby argued in contrast that it would be vital to have a strong France to help rebuild Europe, hence their loss of Indochina would only weaken the stability of any future French government. Moreover, Britain too was pressuring the United States to help France regain Indochina. Finally, with the Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe, France would be a necessary component in stopping the advance of communism across the rest of the continent. Eventually, it was decided that the U.S. would take a neutral position on the matter. It would not oppose a French return to Indochina, but it would not facilitate it either. On the other hand, it would recommend to the French that Paris grant more self-government and increase autonomy to the Indochinese people. For the British, uh, the French were an ally in the region. An independent Southeast Asia would challenge the legitimacy of her colonies of Malaya, Singapore, and Hong Kong, and she needed the revenues from these economies to rebuild her economy and pay off the Americans. Malaya also imported large amounts of rice from Vietnam, and the British didn't want that leverage in the hands of an unfriendly state. However, the British were keen not to offend American anti-colonial sentiments or complicate relations with a nationalist China. Britain, as well as the Americans, also needed a strong France in Europe, especially if the Americans became isolationist again, a militant Germany revived again, or in dealing with the Soviets in Eastern Europe. Whatever the scenario played out, Britain would need a reliable France. Britain often would take up the French position in meetings with the Americans when the French weren't present, hoping to get the Americans to accept a French role in the Pacific War. The British also lobbied the Americans to accept the French colony in Indochina in exchange for American bases and free economic access to Indochina's markets. They argued that only a European power like France could ensure a stable environment for U.S. investment. Premature independence, the British argued, would expose Southeast Asia to greater economic and political instability and danger. The British hoped this tactic would crack the alliance between the anti-colonial lobby and American business. Events in Indochina were starting to take on a life of their own, though. With the collapse of the Japanese position in August 1945, a power vacuum opened. The Japanese forces returned to their barracks, awaiting the Allies to process them and ship them home. The French lacked any type of forces in the region. Thus, the Viet Minh quickly captured almost all of northern Vietnam, including Hanoi and Haiphong, uh, riding on a wave of popular support. In Wei, the puppet emperor Bo Dai announced that he would support a new government led by Ho Chi Minh. 
Nevertheless, mass rallies throughout the country demanded he abdicate, which he did on August the 25th, declaring his support for the new regime and surrendering his imperial sword to the new government. On September the 2nd, the day Japan formally surrendered, Ho Chi Minh, on a balcony overlooking hundreds of thousands in Hanoi, proclaimed the independence of Vietnam and the creation of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Quoting the U.S. Declaration of Independence, he stated that all men were created equal and endowed by their creators with certain inalienable rights, that among these were life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He pointed out that these were undeniable truths for all people, including the Vietnamese, but the French had denied these rights to the Vietnamese people the last 80 years. Ho's, after Ho's speech, the head of the military, Jap, thanked the United States and China for their support. Interestingly, Ho nor Jap mentioned either the Soviet Union or socialism. It was clear that Ho was making a play for American support in his Declaration of Independence and wished to win American support. Ironically, in between these two speeches, an American plane appeared overhead and the crowd broke out into celebration, though many Vietnamese nationalists hoped for American support, not just the Viet Minh. Yet Ho knew despite these victories, they still faced an uphill struggle. He knew that he still had to come to terms with the French. Quoting Lenin, he said, quote, Seizing power is difficult, but keeping it is even more harder. Close quote. The food problem still acquired attention as well. Other rival nationalist movements, though stunned with the defeat of Japan and the sweeping Viet Minh victory, remained in danger, and it was not clear how the Allies or Soviet Union would react. Meanwhile, the south of the country remained outside of Viet Minh control. Southern Vietnam was divided between multiple factions, all competing to gain power. Some of them were pro-Japanese, others were pro-French. The Viet Minh were present, but lacked the numbers and popular support that they had in the north. At Potsdam, it was decided that the Chinese would liberate Indochina north of the 16th parallel, whereas the British would liberate below the 16th parallel. Officially, they were there to disarm the Japanese and preserve law and order until a provisional government could be put in place. The British were intent on putting the French back into power, and the Kuomintang had told French authorities that they didn't oppose a return of the French to Indochina. In the final days of August, the first Allied soldiers began to arrive. 150,000 Chinese crossed the line under the commander of the warlord Lu Han, and on September the 9th, his forces, haggard and malnutritioned, entered Hanoi. They immediately started to loot and rape the local inhabitants. Many of the Chinese soldiers were mere peasants and were not familiar with electric lights or fans. With the Chinese also came a sizable number of Vietnamese nationalists outside of the Viet Minh who returned. Ho moved to strengthen his position with the people. He moved to lower taxes on small landowners, winning the support of more of the middle class. French land and those who collaborated with, with them had their holdings liquidated and given to the peasants, winning even further support amongst the peasants. Forced labor was outlawed, and the eight-hour workday became law. A literacy campaign was launched, and the government announced general elections based on universal suffrage in order to elect a general assembly. Women were also encouraged to run. In November, Ho declared that Vietnamese society would be, be, would be composed of more than just the workers and peasants and could contain all patriotic elements, and subsequently dissolved this, the Vietnamese Communist Party although the party informally continued to operate. These moves further distanced Ho from Stalin and Mao. This move was made to reassure the Chinese Kuomintang, occupiers, and Americans he was trying to win the support of. 
The following year, when talks in Paris, when asked by journalists about his communist beliefs, Ho said Vietnam wouldn't be ready for communism for another 50 years, and if communism did come, it would be gradual. Moreover, he invited capitalists to come to his country, and he emphasized the importance of private property. Many were skeptical of these uh, changes by Ho, though, and the new government in Hanoi. The Catholics worried about being prosecuted for their faith and their historical links to the French. Meanwhile, in southern Vietnam, Gurkhas and Punjabi troops under British command entered Saigon on September the 12th. British General Douglas Gracie was a classic imperialist and pro-French, and he saw his mission as, quote, putting the natives back in their place and restoring white French rule to Indochina. When the Viet Minh delegation tried to meet him at the airport, he walked past them as if they weren't even there. He refused to meet them and had them evicted from all government buildings. He established a a headquarters and a base with segregated housing for Europeans and Indians, a bagpipe band, a movie theater, and a brothel for his troops. He declared martial law and banned public meetings and demonstrations, imposed a curfew, and closed down the Vietnamese press. The French press, likewise, however, remained untouched. Looters and saboteurs were ceremonially shot. He released a 1,000 French prisoners who had been held by the Japanese, who joined French citizens and began to terrorize the local Vietnamese population. Hundreds were publicly beaten, jailed, and hung. French women who had sympathized with the Vietnamese had their heads shaved. Disgusted by this activity, Gracie had these men ordered back to barracks. In response, the Viet Minh ordered a general strike throughout Saigon. French civilians built barricades and fortified buildings. Gunfights broke out between the French and Viet Minh throughout the city. The thud of mortar rounds could be heard throughout the city as the situation escalated. Viet Minh attack squads took the airport and liberated their fellow Vietnamese who had been arrested. They also attacked and killed French civilians and mixed-race Eurasians, including women and children. The problem for the French was how to get sizable numbers of French troops into Indochina as quickly as possible. France had planned on participating in the invasion of Indochina with the British in 1946, but the Japanese surrender sped up the timeline. They only had 979 men and 17 vehicles available in Ceylon, the staging area. Another 2,300 troops were available in Madagascar, and another 17,000 could be shipped out in September from France. General Leclerc, the famed World War II commander, had been placed in charge. He subsequently requested as many C-47s as the British and French government could spare to get above the 16th parallel to restore French control. The French army was equipped with American equipment, though, through Lend-Lease and from what stocks they could buy in the open market. With the end of the war, large stocks of American gear were being sold off at bargain rates, and the French tried to buy as much as they could. Back in Saigon, Gracie managed to calm the situation, but not before the deaths of some 70 Europeans and 200 Vietnamese. The general persuaded the French and Vietnamese to begin talks as he prepared for the arrival of the French, and a delicate truce developed. On October the 3rd, though, the French battleship Richelieu and the light cruiser Triumphant arrived with a convoy of British-supplied Liberty ships and began to unload Leclerc's 5th Colonial Regiment. Admiral Terry D'Arganlu, a former monk who had joined the Navy after the fall of France in 1940, became the new High Commissioner of Indochina. An old-school imperialist, he was intent on restoring French colonial rule to Indochina. The fighting in the city quickly resumed. A few weeks later, British, French, and Japanese forces 
who had been ordered by the British to take part, pushed the Viet Minh out of the city and began to take the suburbs and surrounding towns. By the middle of December, French forces had captured Vietnam south of the 16th parallel with the help of the British. Meanwhile, French efforts in Cambodia and Laos were going well to reestablish themselves there. The British had suffered some 80 casualties, while Japanese, who were supposed to be prisoners of war, suffered some 123. This set off a controversy that threatened Britain's ties with the United States. The left wing of the British Labour Party also questioned the government's motives in support of the French and Dutch colonial projects in Asia, while Nehru in India criticized Britain's efforts in Indochina and their use of Indian troops to do their dirty work. In Ceylon, workers refused to service French or Dutch ships headed for the Far East. The British government ordered Gracie to keep his troops in Saigon and to rely on the rearmed French and, if need be, the Japanese to maintain order. British forces should only be intervene in emergency situations, he was ordered. British forces would be withdrawn as soon as sufficient French forces were in place. Ho Chi Minh came to the conclusion that the American government's stance of semi-neutrality wouldn't stop the French from returning to Vietnam. Moreover, most of the communist world had abandoned the Vietnamese cause. Stalin was more interested in Eastern Europe and doubted Ho was a real communist and Vietnam was too far away to really matter to the Soviet Union. The French Communist Party at this point followed Stalin's line and wouldn't stand in the way of the other French political parties reestablishing French control of Indochina. Ho's government was ill-prepared to fight a war against the French. He would have to seek some type of negotiated settlement. His government's funds were meager, and with the government's tax cuts, he could raise very little capital, and politically he wasn't in a position to raise taxes. The government resorted to a public appeal for money and jewelry. All over northern Vietnam, individuals offered wedding rings, family heirlooms, necklaces, and wristwatches. The government collected a significant sum, but not enough to build a modern army, which is what the Viet Minh needed if they had hoped to retain their independence. Jap by the fall of 1945 had some 50,000 soldiers, but they still lacked arms and ammunition. The army was armed with a mix of Japanese and American weapons, along with sticks, spears, and old flintlock muskets. With great reluctance, Ho used the gold and jewelry collected from the people to purchase 30,000 rifles and 2,000 machine guns from the Kuomintang. In January 1946, the Viet Minh won a clear majority in the election and further strengthened the legitimacy of Ho's government. This gave Ho more latitude in seeking negotiations with the French, given the more militant factions in his party. Both sides agreed to pursue negotiations. The French lacked the troops on the ground to capture the North, and the British couldn't help them given the mounting political pressure. The Viet Minh, although secure in the North, still lacked the strength to stand up to the French. While both sides' diplomats and politicians negotiated, both sides' armed forces prepared for war. Leclerc was worried, though. Few large-scale battles had taken place as the Viet Minh guerrillas vanished into the dense jungle. The French hoped to push their luck and land their forces in, in Haiphong. Some 21,000 men of the French 9th Colonial Division loaded onto ships in Saigon and sailed north. The risks were huge. What if the Chinese tried to stop them, or what if the Vietnamese tried to stop their landings? When the French entered Haiphong Harbor, the Chinese batteries did open fire on them. The French returned fire, and the fighting continued until 11 a.m. The Chinese negotiated with both the French and the Vietnamese, but the Vietnamese wouldn't allow the French to land. The Chinese became irritated and threatened that if they didn't come to an agreement with the French, they would have to fight 
uh, both of them. The Vietnamese backed down and agreed to let the French come ashore as long as they recognized Vietnam as a free state within the Indochinese Federation and the French Union. The Vietnamese also agreed to accept 25,000 French troops in northern Vietnam to relieve the departing Chinese troops. Chiang Kai-shek needed these forces elsewhere as the Chinese Civil War was intensifying. The French also agreed to a popular referendum on uniting the three key states of Vietnam into a single political unit. Many Vietnamese were angry with Ho, though, for signing such an agreement, but Ho saw it as a way to rid themselves of the Chinese. As he told his aides, quote, I would prefer to sniff French shit for five years than to eat Chinese shit for the rest of my life, close quote. Despite this March 6th accord, sporadic fighting, though, did continue to happen in the South. D'Arganlou, in violation of the March 6th accord and without consent from Paris, established an autonomous Republic of Cochin, China, in South Vietnam in the name of France, in an attempt to undermine the peace talks, therefore taking the issue of uniting the country off the diplomatic table. This in itself almost scuttled the talks between Ho and the French. However, Ho saw the talks as a last chance to prevent, to prevent fighting. Ho respected the French as he had lived in Paris for a number of years. He had also hoped to garner the support of the French, communists, and socialists in winning a peace. At the talks in Paris, the Vietnamese stressed a weak form of association with France and a uniting of their nation, and the French sought a guided self-government within the French Union, with France controlling the sovereignty of Vietnam and refused to recognize Cochin China as a part of Vietnam. Support for the Vietnamese and the socialists and communists never came beyond a few positive newspaper articles and speeches. The socialists had lost seats in the last election and felt backing the Vietnamese might cost them in popularity, and the French communists were ambivalent on the Vietnamese cause and preferred to follow Moscow's direction. The French government never took the negotiations seriously and sent second-string diplomats and politicians. They went through the motions to placate the Americans, but they had already decided that the issue would be settled in the field of battle. When asked how Ho could hope to wage war against the French and their modern army, Ho said that it wouldn't be hopeless, but hard and desperate. But the Vietnamese could win. History, he said, offered many examples, the Yugoslavians against the Germans or the Americans against the British. He said, quote, it will be a war between an elephant and a tiger. If the tiger ever stands still, the elephant will crush him. But the tiger does not stand still. He will leap upon the back of the elephant, tearing huge chunks from his hide, and then he will leap back into the jungle. And slowly the elephant will bleed to death. That will be the war in Indochina. Close quote. Fighting broke out when a French patrol ship in the Red River Delta seized a Chinese junk carrying gasoline. The Viet Minh intercepted the French and arrested them. The French tried to rescue their crew, other patrol boat, and fighting broke out throughout Haiphong. By the end of the night, first night, 240 Vietnamese and 7 French had been killed. Some tried to call for peace, like the new French Prime Minister, Bloom, who was a pacifist, but the dogs of war had already slipped loose. Many French were intent on wiping the floor of the Vietnamese and were intent on achieving a military victory after the horrible defeat of 1940. The French General Valois ordered the French commander, Colonel Pierre-Louis Diebs, who hated the Vietnamese, to take advantage of the situation to improve the French position in Haiphong. Diebs ordered the Vietnamese to evacuate the city. 
the Vietnamese refused to cooperate and De Bies ordered a general attack with artillery support. Two days of naval gunfire and air bombardment turned the Asian quarter of Haiphong into rubble. Civilians who attempted to leave the city were strafed by spitfires. How many Vietnamese died we do not know, but certainly thousands. Jap Ho's military commander was a former history teacher and a great admirer of Napoleon. He was also well-versed in Mao's theories around revolution and guerrilla warfare. Jap would avoid a major engagement with the French and instead rely on small guerrilla tactics to sap the will and strength of the French. Jap planned that once he had built his units that could stand in battle with the French, he would escalate the fighting to conventional attacks. As the stalemate took hold and the morale of the French plummeted, then he would launch the third phase to engage the enemy at a set and set piece battles, defeating him and capturing the control of the enemy territory. Beginning in 1946, Jap had created two large bases for the first phase of the struggle. These bases would offer protection to his forces and be areas for his troops to rest and recruit new troops. The first base was located in the northern jungle mountains and large limestone caves. The area was easy to defend and sparsely populated by pro-Vietnamese people. The second base was close to the Red River Delta. It was more exposed to the enemy, but had a greater proximity to Hanoi and Haiphong and the sea. With the break between the Viet Minh and the French, Jap also took the opportunity to eliminate rival nationalist opponents. Thousands of non-communists were summarily arrested and executed. Many non-communists felt that their only course of action was to back the French. The French, on the other hand, with the withdrawal of the British and the Japanese, lacked the troops to control the colony. Most of their best units were now in the north, and with only a skeleton force in the south. The French government refused to allow French conscripts to be sent to Indochina for fear of the political repercussions. So the war was fought with French volunteers, colonial troops from Africa, Tunisia, and Algeria, and locally recruited Indochinese. These manpower issues were exacerbated as well when troops that were headed to Indochina had to be rerouted to Madagascar in 1947, to deal with a rebellion there. The plans drafted for 1946 called for a force of 75,000 to occupy Indochina, with that number dropping to 45,000 to meet budget obligations. But it was clear to most for France to win this war, she would need more than the 45,000 men uh, a plan for. Moreover, the war was already costing 250 million francs a year. The Argan Lu, in an attempt to address the issue, created a Vietnamese army of some 10,000 men. The French Foreign Legion also comprised a large part of the fighting force. Some 28% were German in their mid-20s who had fought for the Wehrmacht and had been known no life other than war. They had no love for their French officers, though, and it made for an interesting dynamic, since many of them had taken part in the conquest and occupation of France, 1940 to 1944. In all, the French actually numbered about 10,000 out of a force of 100,000 troops. The Americans, meanwhile, dispatched Abbot Moffat to meet with Ho. Ho told Moffat that his movement was about independence and not communism and offered the use of Cayman Rain Bay as a military base for the U.S. in exchange for U.S. diplomatic recognition. Moffat reported back to Washington that the Viet Minh was a communist movement, probably as a result of seeing Jap's actions in eliminating his political rivals in the North. Moffat urged the U.S. to back the French to ward off possible communist Chinese or Soviet encroachment. 
Meanwhile, fighting had spread to Hanoi. Gunfire and mortars could be heard throughout that city, and the Viet Minh began to bombard the city with their few artillery pieces. Jap pulled back much of his forces to the mountains and suburbs. The French captured the city only after much brutal house-to-house fighting with the remaining forces Jap had left behind. They were disappointed, though, in not capturing any of the Viet Minh leadership, and much of Hanoi, a once beautiful city, was left in rubble. They had expected to seal off Hanoi and destroy the Viet Minh in a few days. The Viet Minh forces in the city, in contrast, had achieved their goal of tying down the French forces while the Viet Minh army and government escaped to the mountains. The fighting quickly escalated in the south as well. Ho issued an appeal for national resistance, vowing through the sh- though the struggle would be difficult and long the Vietnamese would win in the end. Hundreds of thousands throughout Vietnam rallied to the communist side, and the French faced a full-on insurrection. French public opinion, meanwhile, was more or less oblivious to what was happening in Indochina. Partly this was because most French were still struggling to find work and food. Second, no French newspapers had reporters in Vietnam, and the government could control the flow of information. The Vietnamese were naturally blamed for the outbreak of the fighting, and the less than honorable acts of the French army were omitted. As 1947 began, the Viet Minh launched their guerrilla war, destroying bridges and railroads, attacking convoys, and assassinating French and collaborators. Food supplies grew scarce, especially in Hanoi. Jap understood, though, that this terror had to be calibrated just right. Too much violence might turn the people against them. French intelligence was unable to counter the Viet Minh either. The French could track large Viet Minh formations on maps and Surveillance aircraft patrolled the jungle, but they lacked any human intelligence. The Vietnamese had very little love for the French, and the French found it extremely difficult to develop these assets. Prisoners became a source of intelligence, but the authenticity of the information was always in question. Torture was always also employed greatly by the French, but later studies found most of the information gathered to be dubious. Although it should be noted that the Viet Minh practiced torture as well. The Viet Minh also got some help from the French Communist Party, which voted in favor of withholding funds for the war and started public demonstrations against it. By early February, after six weeks of fighting, the French reported 1,855 men killed or severely wounded. Vietnamese casualties are unknown but believed to be higher. By April, though, the French had control of all the major cities and the Red River Delta. In the south, however, guerrilla activity continued to grow. The French controlled the cities and roads, but the Viet Minh controlled the countryside. Moreover, whereas the French controlled the day, the Vietnamese controlled the night. Balway had hoped to restart his offensive, but the monsoon season, which runs from May to October, turned most of the roads into a sea of mud. Even in dry weather, the road network was primitive. The fastest a convoy could travel typically was 8 miles an hour. Ill-suited to the mechanized type of warfare the French army had been built to fight and the relatively flat grasslands of Western Europe. Vietnam, in contrast, was swamp, mountains, and dense jungle with small areas of grassland in the far south. General Leclerc returned to the region to assess the situation for Paris. When he returned, he told them that to win, France would need a political plan for victory and 500,000 men. An unidentified French officer told the New York Times that France faced an unwinnable war. In the autumn of 1947, Valois decided to try and engage the Viet Minh in a set-piece battle to destroy the Viet Minh army before the French ran out of money and troops. 
French politicians at this time were calling for the army to be reduced to 90,000 men. The French plan called for a drive into the communist stronghold of Tonkin in northern Vietnam, where the communists were believed to be held up in the mountains with about 40,000 men. The French plan called for a battle of encirclement with three groups. The first group was a half-strength airborne brigade to be dropped and supplied by old JU-52s and C-47s. The second group was composed of three armored battalions, three artillery battalions, and three infantry battalions. The final force would be composed of three infantry battalions, all of this backed up by a, a fighter group of Spitfires. The airborne force jumped at dawn on October the 7th with 1,137 men right over Bac Khan headquarters. The French had just missed Ho and his staff, which escaped just in time. Important arms and food stores were captured, and hundreds of French and Vietnamese prisoners were rescued. The second group moved out from Cao uh, Bang and attempted to catch the fleeing Vietnamese. The Vietnamese tried to hold off the, the second force and destroy the paratroopers, but after three days of bitter fighting, withdrew. The third force brought up the, the Red River by the French Navy, engaged and encircled the Viet Minh. This encirclement was only really on French maps. In the mountainous and dense forests, there were gaps in the French lines, and whole Viet Minh regiments escaped the trap. The Vietnamese had suffered heavy casualties, some 9,500, but the French couldn't hold the ground that they had taken, and on December the 22nd, they pulled back to their bases along the Vietnamese and Chinese border in Hanoi. After their failed attempt to destroy the Viet Minh army, the French decided that the best course of action would be to win American support. The French told the Americans that Ho was a pawn of Stalin. Washington knew there was no clear link with the Soviets, but Ho had spent time in Moscow in the 1920s, and they feared that Moscow still may try and exploit the situation in the future. The French also attempted to reach out to American Catholics to build sympathy with the French Vietnamese Catholics fighting against the communists. The Americans still also feared what French military de defeat might mean for the Fourth Republic. They also knew indirectly that they were already financing the war as the French had already used some $1.9 in Marshall Plan funds to fund to, to pay for the war. The Viet Minh, for their part, still had no substantial contacts with either the Chinese communists or the Soviets. Stalin was especially displeased about Ho's dissolving the Vietnamese Communist Party and more interested in Europe. India had offered its rhetorical support, but no material aid. The French knew that under the current political situation, the Americans would never back the French to restore open French rule. However, the French felt the Americans may be open to back a democratic puppet state that was open to U.S. economic investment and military bases. Therefore, they drafted the, the former emperor, Bai Dao, to lead the new state. Bai Dao was a man with a passion for gambling, sports, and fast women, and they assumed he would be malleable to their efforts. Now Dai Diem, the future ally of the Americans in Vietnam and a rising political star in the South, told the French Bao Dai could produce Vietnamese independence without communism. Bao Dai had been crowned emperor at 12 and had been educated in Paris and was very familiar to the French. Bao Dai had originally backed the revolution, like we saw earlier, but had become disenfranchised in 1946 and had moved to Hong Kong. To the surprise of many, Bao Dai was a modern ruler. He reformed the judicial and educational system and ended the outdated method of kowtowing in favor of a Bao. Ho immediately branded Bao Dai a traitor.
1948 saw no major military operations by the French, as the size of the French forces remained relatively the same, around 100,000 men. Instead, the French tried to hold what they had taken in 46 and 47, especially a string of forts on the Chinese border, which attempted to block aid from China for the Viet Minh. These bases were isolated and beset by constant attack and had to be supplied by the air as road convoys were repeatedly attacked. The French army did see an increase in women personnel, though, as many more worked in French bureaucracy. Uh, But numerous women also served as ambulance drivers, nurses, doctors, and helicopter pilots. The Viet Minh, meanwhile, continued its sabotage attacks, concentrating on the roads and railroads between Hanoi and Haiphong. In mid-September, in the span of three days, the Viet Minh blew up four trains on this line. By October in Hanoi, no gasoline was available for civilian use. At this point in the conflict, the French had suffered 100,000 casualties, with about 25,000 dead or captured. Many French colonial troops, especially Moroccans, were questioning why they were fighting at people who just wanted their own nation as they did. 1949, though, was a big year for the conflict. Mao finally won the long civil war in China that had been raging since the 1920s, and the Soviets detonated their first atomic bomb. 1949 also saw an escalation of the communist insurgency in Malaya and a short-lived communist rebellion in Indonesia. In response, Truman stepped up aid to the French. The domino theory started to come into vogue, especially with the outbreak of the Korean War the following year. If Vietnam fell to communism, the theory went, Laos and Cambodia would follow suit, as would Thailand and Malaya, and communism would spread to the Middle East and Indonesia, threatening the oil reserves of the Middle East and the strategic balance in the Pacific, threatening the West's economic survival. The French also declared the puppet Baidao regime as as an associated state within the French Union to show the Americans they were making progress, telling the Americans that Baidao was the only thing standing in the way of Vietnam becoming communist. Time and Life magazines also shifted their support behind the French, telling their readers that France was fighting for the West in Vietnam. Both these magazines had incredible influence during this period. Life, for example, was read by 44% of college-educated Americans. The French did suffer a setback, though, as a secret government report was released to the public. In this Reeves report, it stated that no military solution existed in Vietnam with the current numbers of French troops. Second, that the Bodai government only had minimal support amongst the Vietnamese people, and the French military didn't have much faith in him either. It urged the French politicians to seek a piece of the brave. Vietnam men also made a big move that year. They slipped over the border and helped the communist Chinese defeat the last of the Kuomintang in southern China. This helped bolster Ho's reputation with Mao. Moreover, Mao saw the French and their American allies as a threat to his new country in Vietnam, so he agreed to support Ho in his struggle against the French. Therefore, on January 18, 1950, the People's Republic of China recognized the Democratic Republic of Vietnam as a legitimate government of Vietnam. January the 30th, the Soviet Union followed Mao's lead, and in the following weeks, Vietnam was recognized by the rest of the communist world community. Direct aid from China increased dramatically, now that the Chinese Civil War had ended. The Chinese established military schools in southern China to train Vietnamese officers, and equipment and supplies headed south. The outbreak of the Korean War only intensified Chinese aid for the Vietnamese, making the French forts on the northern Vietnamese border even more vulnerable. 
That first year, the Chinese supplied 14,000 guns, 1,700 machine guns, 150 artillery pieces, 2,800 tons of grain, along with uniforms, medicine, and radios, including 200 heavy Molotov trucks, which you can see on the website. Stalin still considered Mao and Ho cave-dweller Marxist, but their conflicts with the West fit into his overall struggle with the West. This embrace of the communist world by Ho, though, all but gifted American aid to the French. Yet, in fairness, the Americans had already been indirectly aiding the French, and without, without outside support, the Viet Minh struggle might have been lost. On February the 7th, the United States declared their support for the Bodai government and its sister regimes in Laos and Cambodia, and that she would ex- extend formal economic and military aid to France and her allied governments in Indochina to stop Soviet imperialism. In May, Truman approved $23.3 million in aid for the Indochinese states. By early 1951, Washington had given the French some 7,200 tons of military equipment per month on average. It's tempting to think that if Truman had chosen to back Ho versus the, the French, America might have escaped the peril of the Vietnam War. However, we can't know for certain that Ho would have pursued a non-communist Vietnam or that he might not have sought Soviet assistance at some point. He more than likely would have been a leader like Tito. The effects of such a decision should have had consequences of their own as well. If France would have lost Indochina before the Marshall Plan had taken uh, effect, it would have destabilized the French government even more. The French Communist Party, as we have seen in past episodes, was a significant force in French politics. Would they have seized the government because of this? We can't say. Pressing the issue on Indochina would have also upset the British with unforeseen consequences, and it should also be remembered that the U.S. government got its way on Germany with France because of the aid we were giving them in reference to Indochina. In the end, the U.S. might have been caught in a lose-lose situation. Diplomats and politicians are often presented with the lesser of two evil scenarios. Many contend that the United States became more involved in Vietnam for economic reasons, and that although American business did want greater access to Vietnamese markets, the region was not a critical component to the American economy, and the U.S. had very little investment in the region before World War II. I want to take a quick break here and thank you for listening to the podcast and for all of you who have made a financial contribution to keeping this show going. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback about the wide range of topics covered by our show, such as the Cold War in Scandinavia, uh, the fall of the Dutch East Empire in Indonesia, uh, and our episode about British intelligence. If you want to support us and continue to make content like this, please consider contributing $5 a month through Patreon. This money helps keep us the podcast hosted, the website up, and the purchase of books and sources to produce the content that you guys love. Any amount contributed is appreciated, and if you are already a contributor but still want to help, share one of your favorite episodes on Facebook or Twitter with a little blurb about why your friend should take a moment out of their day to catch out, check out the episode. So again, if you want to contribute to the podcast, go to www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. Now back to the show. While new alliances were being forged, the Vietnamese sabotage campaign was holding down more and more French troops, taking the initiative away from the French as they had to guard roads and railroads. Watchtowers dotted the landscape. This did achieve some success in protecting the roads and stopping attacks on convoys and trains, but the static posts themselves soon became easy targets for the Viet Minh. 
By late spring of 1950, the Viet Minh had grown to a force of 250,000, organized into three components, a regular army, regional units, and a guerrilla force. The regular army was about 120,000 men, organized on European lines into six divisions. Each had three infantry regiments, an artillery battalion, and an anti-aircraft battalion, as well as staff and support elements. These were the units designed to go head-to-head with French units and destroy them in the field under favorable conditions, although in some ways the Viet Minh units were more heavily armored than the French with bazookas and mortars. Regional troops were heavily armed as well, but often lacked ammunition. They were designed for short fights with the French under extremely favorable conditions. After the initial skirmishes, these units would retreat into the jungle. Their job was to harass the French army. The guerrilla force was lightly armed. These units were composed of mostly part-timers who practiced sabotage, assassination, and terror, in addition to gathering intelligence. Women didn't serve in the regular army, but they did serve throughout the uh, Democratic Republic of Vietnam's uh, bureaucracy and in guerrilla units. Jap spent the rainy season saving his resources for a large-scale autumn offensive. But Jap had, did have some challenges, though, as he had to cut the rations of his troops twice and they were on the verge of going hungry. In the south, his mostly guerrilla forces had taken heavy casualties from French artillery and air power, leaving the south more or less pacified for the rest of the war. Jap decided to try and destroy one of these vulnerable French border forts. He chose the fort at Dong Kai and waited until bad weather rolled in, denying the French the ability to call for air cover. At dawn on September the 16th, he threw five battalions back with artillery and mortars at two companies of French foreign legionnaires stationed there. For two days, the battle raged as the legionnaires fought tenaciously. They were finally overcome, though, and the French garrison further north at Kaobang was cut off. The French high command ordered these troops to retreat south before they became encircled. The French also sent another column of 3,500 Moroccan paratroopers north from another base to try and save them. The French commander at Kaobang disobeyed the order to leave his vehicles behind and travel by foot. Instead, he loaded his men onto the trucks with artillery. His force of 1,000 Moroccans and 600 legionnaires, accompanied by 500 civilians, many of whom were camp prostitutes, slowly moved south along the highway, creating a nice juicy convoy for the Viet Minh. The next morning, after only traveling about nine miles, they had to go 43, the front and back of the column was blocked, and artillery and mortar fire rained down. The Viet Minh opened f- fire from the tree line, ca- catching the French in crossfire. The commander ordered his men to burn their the remaining trucks and to leave the artillery. My sources don't report on what he decided to do with the prostitutes. He ordered his men to attack into the tree line and to try and flank the enemy. Many of the men uh, became lost in the thick brush. By nightfall, many of the men were exhausted, but the Viet Minh were unrelenting in their attack. Over the next six days, they chased the surviving French through the jungle. Meanwhile, the column moving north had engaged the enemy and had taken heavy casualties. By the time they linked up, the two were low on food, water, and ammunition. Worse yet, they were surrounded by 15 Viet Minh battalions. Panic set in among the Moroccans, who had a reputation for being brave. Many dropped their rifles and screamed for Allah to save them as they tried to escape. Order quickly broke down and the situation turned into a rout. Some of the men made it to safety, but most were captured by the Viet Minh. This was a disaster. Defeat had shown that the the Viet Minh were a professional fighting force that needed to be taken seriously. 
They had used coordinated artillery very effectively, the mark of a modern Western army. The French were shocked. They had lost 4,800 men, either dead or missing. Although the Viet Minh took high casualties as well in their victory, as an estimated 9,000 died. Because of the long distances and rough terrain, it just took too long for, to get these wounded men to field hospitals. The French also lost 100 mortars, 950 machine guns, and 8,000 rifles. 450 trucks as well, all of which was a windfall to the Viet Minh. To compound this disaster, French forts all along the border had to be abandoned with all their equipment falling into enemy hands. The border with China was now completely opened. I want to thank you for listening to part one of episode 31. Join us next time as we conclude the French-Indochina War on August the 1st. Don't forget to check out the photos for this episode on the website. And while there, feel free to follow us on social media at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. If you want to support us, please consider becoming a monthly contributor through Patreon for $5 or whatever amount you feel appropriate. As always, any contribution, no matter how small, is greatly appreciated. Moreover, feel free to email us with questions and episode ideas, as well as if you have, haven't already done so, uh, fill out our survey there to help us to bring you a better show. Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.